1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. Uh, Paul has been answering questions about marriage and, and singleness, and he's wrapping up that part of his discussion here in verses 25 through 40 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, as we, uh, as we jump in here, I, I suppose I should say that some passages of the Bible are fairly straightforward and, and easy to understand and apply, and some are not. And this is one of those passages that is not. Uh, so, uh, with that in mind, before we read, how about we pray once again and plead with the Lord to, to be our teacher, to guide us, as well as to be present among us, meet, meeting with us as we hear him speak to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, your word, it is life and light. It shows us Christ, it shows us our need of him, and it offers him to us freely. And we pray for that now, that as we come even to this difficult passage, that we would see our need, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ and his all-sufficiency, and that you would give him to each and every one of us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians 7, picking it up in verse 25, let's hear God's word. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, And has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier 
if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Amen. Well, thanks be to God for his word. One of the commentaries uh, looked at this week quoted a comedian who said that when it comes to singleness and marriage, there's really two options. And uh, he laid out those two options with a question. The question was, I suppose two questions, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Uh, that's a pretty cynical take, isn't it? Uh, single and lonely or married and bored. Those are, those are the two options that you have when it comes to this whole issue of singleness and marriage. Cynical as it is, I wonder how many people suspect that there might at least be a grain of truth when it comes to that. Single life, I have lots of fun, be able to do lots of things, but in the end, you're going to do it all alone. Or married, there's security and stability and so forth, but you're going to live a fairly mundane life. A lot of people might think that way about the issues of singleness and marriage. And what I want us to see in this passage today is that Paul gives us the resources as Christians to cut right through that kind of cynical thinking about singleness and marriage in this text. I want us to see three things that Paul teaches in this passage as we try to make sense of it. The three things, Paul, Paul's call to a profound contentment, first of all. Secondly, Paul's call to a radical consecration. And then thirdly, he teaches Christians a practical conviction. So those are, those are the three things we're going to take a look at. A profound contentment, a radical consecration, and a practical conviction. Let's get started with the first thing, a, the call to a profound contentment. Again, the Corinthians are asking, have been asking Paul questions whether or not to pursue marriage now that they've been converted. And in verse 25, Paul admits, frankly, he has no direct command from Christ, something he can quote. This is what the Lord Jesus has said on this matter. But he does have some pastoral advice of his own. And, of course, as an inspired apostle of Christ, by the mercy of God, he says he is one whose judgment is, is trustworthy on the matter. And there's his judgment, if you take a look at it in verses 26 through 28. Take a look at it again to refresh yourself. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have many worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, the first thing I want you to see is how familiar those words are with the verses preceding them, back in verses 18 through 21. Remember there, Paul says, was anyone uh, uncircumcised when he was called? Do not seek circumcision. Or was, was anyone circumcised? Don't seek to remove the marks of your circumcision, Paul puts it. Uh, was anyone a servant when they were called? Don't, don't worry about that, Paul say, said, says to them. In your vocations, your earthly lot, find contentment in the Lord. And that line of thought is continuing here. He's, he's continuing this theme of contentment in the Christian life 
now applying it to the issues of singleness and marriage. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. You see that same pattern of question and answer continuing, and the same vocabulary is in both sections. So, for example, back in verse 20, let each one remain in the condition in which he was called, and now in verse 26, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Paul's continuing this call to Christian contentment. And so I think this paragraph break that we have in our English Bibles between verses 24 and 25, it really doesn't help us a whole lot here. It might lead us astray. It's clear if you pay attention to the details that Paul is continuing the flow of thought from the previous passage into this one with the same theme as being his concern. And so back in verses 17 through 24, that paragraph you have, Paul wants believers to be content with their lot in life, with their calling and their vocations. He's reminded them, you've been called by God, savingly into union with Jesus Christ. And that's where your identity and your satisfaction and contentment are to be found, not in your earthly callings. And now he's extending that to the area of relationships, the area of singleness or marriage. Find your satisfaction and contentment in Jesus and learn to be content. And so Paul continues that theme and is applying it to singleness and and marriage. And to be clear, he's not talking here about marriages where, you know, as he discussed earlier, where a spouse has walked out on you or we might Add to that, a spouse has been unfaithful, or as we thought about the issue of domestic abuse. He's, he's, this is general instruction about contentment, whether married or single. He wants the Corinthians to be content, whatever their calling is, whether it's to singleness or to marriage. Now, that's, that's Paul's advice here to the Corinthians, and and notice he's careful. He's not giving a specific command to individual Corinthians, you be single, you be married. Paul quickly adds, if you do marry, you've not sinned. So he is advising them to think twice before getting married, but if they do marry, he says, that's fine. He's not binding anyone's conscience. So the thing to notice here is that for the Apostle Paul, marriage is a good thing, But singleness is also a good thing. That's Paul's point of view. But apparently there are some circumstances at Corinth, and we'll think about this a little bit more later, that Paul suggests may give them, uh, some of them who are headed toward marriage, pause. Might tell them to think about what they're, they're, they're committing to. He wants them to think carefully before they marry. Think it through, he's saying. If if you can remain as you are and be content in your present situation, learn contentment so that you'll be able to be satisfied whether you are married or, or not. Find your contentment, not in your earthly vocation or in an earthly relationship, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying throughout this passage, Jesus Christ is enough. That's the big idea. You can be content whether single or married. You can be content as you are 
when you know that Jesus Christ really is enough for your heart. But then Paul carefully qualifies all of that uh, for Corinthians who, some of them, those still unmarried, were headed in in that direction. They were betrothed, committed to, to marriage. So take a look at verse 36. If a man feels he is behaving improperly, if he feels like the situation is unfair to his betrothed for one reason or another, he wishes to marry and his sexual passion is strong, maybe even overwhelming, and everything else is in order, so that marriage is wise for the sake of purity, Paul says, so be it. Get married. You're you're not sinning. God will be honored. Paul is not ashamed to say that marriage is one of God's answers to sexual temptation. Now, as an aside, whatever you make, whatever you make of that, I'd be happy to talk to you about it more later if you want. This much is, is very clear from what Paul has to say here in, in verse 36. Paul expects chastity among couples before they are married. And I, I think this needs emphasizing in our day. Uh, I think it needs to be spelled out because of the times in which we live. I've, I, I, I've known, I know several pastors who in the course of premarital counseling in one way or another will ask the couple, have, have you been, have you been uh, intimate with one another before your wedding day? And sadly, tragically, many of them say yes. Some of them are offended that a pastor would even ask such a question. And so I think it is necessary in our day to spell this out, that sex belongs within marriage between one woman and one man and nowhere else. That's it. That's God's context for sexual intimacy. So don't be, don't be desensitized by our hypersexualized culture, which is constantly spewing out the message that any kind of consensual sex is okay. It doesn't matter whether you're married. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter who it's with. So long as it's consensual, everything is fine. Friends, you understand that is a, that's a terrible, devastating, life-impacting lie. And broken lives and destroyed marriages bear that out, don't they? Now, let's keep going here. In, in verse 36, uh, Paul is affirming that marriage is good and pleasing to God. And for those called to it, he wants us to be content in our marriages. And then he balances that, I think, in verse 37. Now, verse 37 is among the most difficult verses, I think, in the New Testament to interpret or to translate and to interpret. Um, You can look at any number of commentaries on this verse and find that many numbering uh, varying opinions on how to understand this verse. Okay, so here's, here's my understanding, as best as I can understand it, understand it's somewhat provisional, but I think it will help us to make sense of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. First, I I do think part of the challenge for us here as we're reading from the ESV is that the ESV translates this verse somewhat unhelpfully. It reads, doesn't it, as though Paul were saying in verse 37, if you're engaged to be married and you can just stay betrothed forever, go ahead and do that. That's good. But I don't think that's what Paul is actually saying. This this Greek phrase, 
translated that way in the ESV, is found in other classical sources where it's understood to mean to maintain your singleness, your virginity, your purity. So think about that. If that's the right reading, put verse 36 and verse 37 alongside of each other and you can think, I think, see what Paul's getting at. In verse 36, Paul is saying, if you're engaged to be married, sexual temptation is overwhelming. For the sake of purity and holiness, go ahead and marry. God will be honored in that marriage. But then he's also saying in verse 37, if you're single and you can fight the, the good fight of sexual purity, then retain your virginity, stay single, and in your singleness, be content and godly and pure and serve the Lord. And that, I think, in a nutshell, is what Paul is saying. So he wants purity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage and contentment in both. Okay? That, I think, is the thrust of what Paul is saying. Uh, purity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage, contentment in both. Be content as a married person. Be content as a single person because you are not to look to anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ as the source and the anchor of the contentment of your heart. Then he has a similar pastoral counsel in verses 38 regarding contentment in verses uh, 38 through 40 for, uh, for widows. So take a look at those verses. Verses 38 through 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Now, is he saying, he's saying, if a spouse dies, the widow or widower is free to remarry only in the Lord. And before we continue to follow that theme of contentment, let's just pause right there because there's something else Paul says here that I think deserves spelling out in our current time. Paul says that a widow may marry, but only in the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians, he'll, he'll talk about believers not being unequally yoked. What is Paul getting at? He's getting at that, that Christians should not marry unbelievers. They should only marry in the Lord. This can be a, this can be a real personal challenge for, for some of us, you know uh, Loneliness is an epidemic of its own in our day. And loneliness is a terrible, terrible thing. And sometimes loneliness may lead us to settle, to compromise, uh, to rationalize our behavior, and then we, and we fall in love and we marry someone who does not know or love Jesus. And as a pastor, I've seen that result in one of two things. Uh, on the one hand, I've sadly seen Christians who want to avoid loneliness compromise and then go on in marriage to experience an even deeper, more profound kind of loneliness that they didn't even know about before. A loneliness within marriage. Second thing I've seen happen is instead of that believer leading that person to, to know and love Christ, they are instead led away into a spiritual wasteland away from the Lord. And so I want to, uh, as I think Scripture leads us to here, lovingly warn and urge those of us who are unmarried, who are thinking about marriage, 
to hear the word of the Apostle Paul here and not make shipwreck of your Christian life. Um, It's never a good thing, is it? It's never a good thing when we deliberately disobey the clear teaching of Scripture, is it? But come back, come back to the theme of contentment. Uh, the Christian widow here is, is free to, to marry. And he says, just as he's been saying all along throughout this passage, if she can remain single in his judgment, she'll be happier. If she's able to be content as she is, she should be a content single. I'm, I'm, I'm almost tempted to go on a rabbit trail here because there's something in the New Testament that I think the church today has lost. And within the New Testament church, it's the whole category and class of widows within the church who fulfilled a kind of office in the New Testament church. And and that kind of thinking has completely dropped out. But that could be in the background of what Paul is saying here. If, If you can be content as a single widow or widower, Can you devote yourself and devote yourself more fully in service to the Lord Jesus Christ and his people? I think Paul is seeking to encourage that. And so step back from from all of this, though, and and let's try to see the big picture, putting these things together. Can can you see the point Paul is driving at again and again and again in 1 Corinthians 7? He wants the Corinthians to learn to be content with their lot. He doesn't want them thinking that the only way they'll be happy is with a, some kind of vocational change in their life or with some kind of relational change, finding Mr. or Mrs. Right. Their contentment is not grounded in their earthly calling or finding a soulmate. And I think that's a word that we, we need to hear because in Christian circles, we can at least give the impression that You know, you have to be in a relationship and that your whole identity is bound up with being a a husband or a father or a wife or a mother. We could never be content or happy without it. And I think if if I can speak frankly here, Paul is seeking to deliver us from that kind of idolatry. The idolatry of a good thing. He's calling us to be content with our lot and our calling in life. And so if we're gifted for singleness... By God's grace, something Paul spoke about earlier in the chapter and is bringing up again here. If God has gifted us and called us to singleness, we are not to be pushed or bullied into thinking that we are somehow deficient or insufficient or or unable to be useful. If you're single, let me say this very, very clearly today. You are not failing. You are not awed. You're not deficient. In fact, Paul is about to teach us that your singleness has many benefits that bring glory to God and are good for others. And so the message running through 1 Corinthians 7, culminating here, it's it's a challenging and, and hard one, but I think it's one that we need to hear. God wants us to learn contentment as we are where we are and who we're with. Whether you're single or married, find your contentment, not in a change of circumstances or a change in relational status, but in Jesus Christ. And so that's the first thing, a call to profound contentment. And then the second thing here, a call to radical consecration. 
Now take a look at verses 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the unmarried man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now he goes on to say the same for the wife and the unmarried woman. And what he's getting at here is there is a, there is a single-mindedness that an unmarried Christian can know that a married man or woman simply cannot as we all seek to serve Jesus together. Okay? So imagine, think about this uh, in practical terms. Let's say, let's say you're a single person and you sense God is calling you into some form of full-time ministry, maybe going onto the mission field. What do you, what do you gotta do? Well, you pray about it, you seek counsel for, for, from others, you go through the church court processes of examination and so forth, whatever is entailed with that, training, and off you go. But not so if you're a married person, right? If, if you're a married individual, you, you don't make decisions like that unilaterally. You don't determine the direction of your life apart from your spouse. You make that decision together. So you have to consider the needs and gifts and feelings and fears and concerns and doubts and questions of your your spouse and loved ones. So you make that decision with them. But if you're single and you want to devote yourself to a life of Christian service, you can, you can pour yourself out without a second thought. Not so for the married person. I think that's what Paul is getting at. There are worldly concerns. Here I think again, relying upon Exodus 21, 10, and 11, the responsibility to provide and to love and to serve and to protect your spouse. There are earthly obligations, human relations to attend to, which are good and pleasing in God's sight. And so you have to consider your spouse and your family if you're married. And so Paul is promoting something here among the Corinthians that I think we might find quite radical today in, in Christianity, a kind of holy zeal that puts the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ above every other concern. That the glory of Jesus and the things of his kingdom would be preeminent in our lives over everything else, including romantic relationships and marriage. He wants, he wants believers in Corinth to be ready to go and give their lives in the service of Jesus, singularly devoted to the things of the Lord and the kingdom of God. But he realizes and he knows that if you're married, that could be harder and more challenging to do. And so the thread running throughout this is a concern for a passionate consecration to the honor and the glory of Christ. As Paul puts it in verse 35, he wants our undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, that word undivided, it's a, it's a really fascinating word. It's a compound word, which literally translated means good sitting beside. That's what Paul wants from us as Christians. He wants us to pull up alongside of the Lord Jesus Christ and to put it into park and to never move from there. He wants us to sit alongside of the Lord Jesus. And that's, that's what he's calling for here. Undivided commitment and devotion 
and consecration to Christ. And I, I wonder, here's the challenge of this text, is this how we really think about our lives on a day-to-day basis? Does this kind of radical devotion to Jesus lay claim on, on our relationships, on our life decisions? You know, younger people, here's a question for you. Do you imagine being so devoted to Christ that you might opt to not pursue a romantic relationship that you might be more free to pursue Christian service instead? Is that even on the radar today, I wonder? Is that even something Christians are thinking about today when it comes to their futures? And if you are considering marriage, which Paul says is fine and good to do, nevertheless, we should be asking ourselves, is our devotion to Christ still directing the decisions that we make? Or has something else come in that is now guiding and directing the the decisions that we make about our future? Somebody might hear about this kind of radical devotion to Jesus that I'm talking about here, and I can imagine the question, why on earth would anybody want anything to do with this? Why would anybody want to do that? And Let me respond to that question by asking another question. What does this tell us about the apostles' view of the Lord Jesus? That he thinks, you know, the return of serving Christ is far, far, far more worthy of our dedication and our commitment than concern with our earthly lot and human relationships. What does it say about the apostles' view of of Jesus that he he thinks the return of serving him far outweighs the joys and the gifts of a romantic relationship or even marriage? Doesn't it say to us that Jesus Christ is infinitely precious, fully soul-satisfying, that he is so soul-satisfyingly glorious that we can, in fact, let goods and kindred go? So do you have room? Do you have room in your Christianity for a Christ whose glory is so great, whose honor is so preeminent in your heart, whose claims over you are so comprehensive that you might cheerfully remain single for the rest of your life so that you might give yourself fully to his cause if that is what he calls you to? See, Paul is summoning the Corinthians here to a profound contentment, but also to a radical kind of consecration because for Paul, Jesus is infinitely precious and worthy of our entire lives. And then then thirdly, notice Paul teaches a practical conviction that really follows right from this train of thought, a conviction that enables us to understand how this kind of radical consecration is even possible. How can a Christian cling so loosely to the things of this world? What makes people less concerned about worldly things and more concerned about advancing the glory of Christ? Well, one of the things Paul brings out, here's the answer. It's understanding that the end of the age is coming. Christians know that the Jesus who died and rose again is now reigning and is coming again soon. And really believing that, really getting that into our bones, will shape how we live in the here and now. 
You know, it's a, maybe a way to illustrate this. I don't know if you have a bucket list. Maybe you have an informal one and you've just got things tucked away in your mind, things that you would like to do before the end, before you go. And chances are you don't really take that bucket list very seriously. It just kind of sits there. Those are things I'd like to do someday. But let's say you go to the doctors and you get a diagnosis and you're told you've got about 12 months. About 12 months. What happens? Very suddenly, you start to attack that bucket list with a sense of urgency, don't you? You seek to go after those things. And that, I think, is somewhat like what Paul is teaching us here. In verse 26, Paul mentions present difficulties. Okay, and it's one of the tricky things of this passage. What's he talking about? We don't really know for sure what they were at Corinth. We know there was a famine in the region, so that was difficult and hard. We know that the emperor had just initiated a, a form of emperor cult worship, and the Corinthians were refusing to burn incense uh, to the emperor and say Caesar is Lord, so they may, might have been suffering for that. We know that the church internally was was a complete wreck, uh, all kinds of moral compromise, and the Lord was disciplining them. Some had even died, Paul, Paul will say later on. And so while we don't really know exactly what the difficulty Paul is referring to here is, we know at, that at Corinth things were really challenging and difficult. But if you look at verse 29, you'll see what Paul does. He places their immediate crisis and difficulty into a bigger context. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Time is running out. Or verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. And so the present difficulties that they were enduring at Corinth or the present difficulties that we are experiencing in our own context, uh, a pandemic, uh, riots in the streets, political unrest, uh, all kinds of confusion about gender and sexuality and the diminishing witness of the church. The, presence, the present crisis, Paul says, is just the first grumblings of a quake that will one day shake everything to its core. And the end is coming, and Christians are to live in that light. I think that is what Paul is trying to teach that not only the Corinthians, but all Christians. And so, you know, you, 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 have, you have a kind of spiritual bucket list. Right? Things God has called you to do in this life according to the gifts and the graces that he has given to you to pursue the glory of Jesus in whatever way you can. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't, don't waste time. The time, is, the time is short. Get Get busy crossing those things off of your, your spiritual bucket list. Cut out the fluff, right? Get rid of the things that unnecessarily hinder you. Pursue with renewed resolve the honor and the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose and is reigning and is coming again. And in verses 29 through 31, Paul Paul gives some advice about, okay, if that's our mindset, what will it look like? What will that look like? Verse 29, from now on, because the time is short, let those who have wives live as if they had none. Now, the world teaches us in one way or another to put ultimate value, find our identity in our marriage, in our relationships, to derive our identity and our joy and our significance from, 
from those relationships. But when you know Christ, when you know that he, is, he has come, God in the flesh, he's died, he's risen, he's reigning, and he's coming again, you will love your husband or your wife. You'll love them for Jesus' sake, but you will, you will not look to them for ultimate value and significance. Instead, you'll find your ultimate value and significance in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. See, Christians don't mourn as though death has the final word, and that earthly sorrow is, is the end of the story. Though weeping may, may last and endure for the night, we confess, don't we, joy comes in the morning. Christ is coming, and everything sad. Is it C.S. Lewis who said this? Everything sad will come untrue. Or he says, uh, those who, who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. That is to say, I think, because we know Jesus is coming again, we don't buy and sell as if the value of our lives were determined by uh, our, our, our savings account, what we have in our bank accounts. We've, we've come to know instead that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of stuff but instead we're seeking to store up our treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. And so my friends, let's let's get busy. This is Paul's challenge. This is my challenge to us. Let's get busy checking off things on our, our spiritual bucket list. Let's let goods and kindred go and instead pursue eternal blessings and deeper joys that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's program for the Christian life. It's a pretty radical thing, I think, in our age of domesticated Christianity, isn't it? It's a radical call that Paul is giving us. Jesus is the one in whom we may find lasting contentment. So be content with your lot, single or married, whatever God has called you to, because Jesus is the one who is so infinitely precious that you really can give up your life and not lose anything but gain. You, can't, you, can, be, you can be consecrated. You can be content in him for he is the one who is coming again soon to, to make all things new and, and gather us to himself forever. And so, friends, live in the light of the shortness of this passing age. Cut out the fluff. And let's together get serious about the pursuit of Jesus' praise. Hold to the things of this world lightly. And cling to the Lord Jesus Christ with all your worth. And may the Lord God give us the grace to do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we do, we do confess that we have uh, loved the things of this world when we've been at times distracted by um, the empty promises that the world gives to us. And we pray that today we would hear this uh, call to a profound contentment and a radical consecration that uh, we can alone know and experience in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, may we be a people who are fully satisfied in him and who are given over wholeheartedly 
to spreading his name throughout the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.